So this morning we continue our series that we've entitled, that I have called Resident Aliens. We've been looking at what it means to be a Christian living in a progressively post-Christian society. A post-Christian society is a sociological term. It means a society that no longer has the worldview or culture or values of Christianity, but it once did. That's why it's called post a post-Christian society. And the United States is such a place, like most of the Western world. Judeo-Christian values and worldview was the dominant worldview of Americans for decades and even centuries. The belief in God, a moral code, views on human sexuality, marriage and divorce, gender identity, an idea of what sin is were all mostly informed by the Bible. So being a Christian in that kind of society is fairly easy. Being a Christian in that kind of society is fairly easy because your neighbors oftentimes value what you value. In that kind of society, evangelism is often a lot easier, as one example, because there's already a socially agreed-upon set of morality, and there's at least somewhat an agreed-upon idea of the concept of what sin is. So evangelism in that sort of society, in that sort of culture, is easy to take someone down what we call the Romans road. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, for God showed his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, to conclude, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's the gospel, right? And it's easy to do in a society that already agrees upon what is right and wrong. It's easy to do in a society that already predominantly has a belief in God. But that only works in that kind of society because in a post-Christian society, there just isn't a common idea of what right and wrong is. There isn't a common belief that there is a God and that he requires us something of us. It's much more challenging in evangelism. But we know there's many more examples that we could point to. It's far more difficult to live in such a society as a Christian. And that's why we're in this series We're in this series to ask, how do we live as resident aliens? Those that live here, God's called us to live among the peoples of the earth, and he's called us to live there, though, as sojourners and exiles and strangers. That our citizenship, our true home, is in another land. It's in the city of God. So how do we then live in the society? And we're looking at it particularly right now because we're in the midst of this election season. And it seems like these kinds of questions are brought more to the fore right now, probably more than ever. Just this last week, in the debates, Secretary Clinton said that she would appoint Supreme Court's justices that will be outcome-based justices. She said she will appoint Supreme Court justices that will be outcome-based justices. She didn't say that she will uphold appoint justices who will uphold the Constitution. She said she will appoint justices who will fight for Roe v. Wade and who will fight for the continued rights 
of the sexual revolution. But on the other side of the aisle, we have a Republican candidate who is a self-proclaimed sexual predator and has vowed to use all the powers of government to have his opponent jailed if he's elected. The predominant worldview, I've said several times in the last few weeks, has changed so rapidly in such a short time. I'll say it again. That every cultural commentator and historian that I've read for the last couple couple years has suggested that the morals and values of our society have changed faster than at any other time in history. Public opinion on matters of marriage, sexuality, and gender have marked a more rapid change than at any other time in history. We're living in a very unique time. Since 1980, a majority of Christians in the United States have voted for a Republican candidate. And many are noting that this likely won't be the case this year. It goes without saying that there is not a Christian candidate. It is no more Christian to vote for a Republican or a Democratic candidate. Needless to say, we live in a time where we are desperate for God's word and God's wisdom, which again is why, as a church, we are looking at the book of Daniel. So just to explain the context briefly for you, Daniel is a story of particularly four Jewish uh, exiles who've been taken from Jerusalem and into Babylon. Uh, All of Israel has been overthrown by the Babylonian Empire, and they've brought in different waves all of these Jewish people to Babylon to live under Babylonian rule. And they're supposed to be there for 70 years. We know that from the prophet Jeremiah said that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. And so the book of Daniel is a story about particularly Daniel 1 and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how these men live in the exile. How they live in this uh, society that knows nothing of their God. And how they're to remain faithful to their God in that society. And God told them very specifically how they're to live. And we're going to talk about it yet again today in Jeremiah chapter 29. He said, go there, live among these people, settle down. So be among them. And he said, but remain distinct, multiply there. So don't assimilate. And he said, and seek the welfare, seek the good of the place while you're there. And we see all that in Daniel. But now we get to Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. We started the book in Daniel chapter 1 when he was a teenager. He was a teenager being brought from Jerusalem into Babylon. And now by the time we get to chapter 6, he's an old man. Most commentators think he's in his early 80s at this point. He's lived most of his entire life under Babylonian exile. So with that in mind, let's read Daniel chapter 6. And I'm going to really press one main point upon us this morning. Because if you know the pattern of Daniel, you know that chapters 2 through 7 are almost mirrored on each other. And chapter 6 is mirrored to chapter 3, which is the uh, fiery furnace. So in some ways you could preach a very identical sermon to the one I preached in God Rescuing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. But I won't do that to you. So we're going to press on a little bit different point that comes out, I think, in this text. We read the text to us. Daniel chapter 6, 
verses 1 to 28. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then as Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel, this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king... Establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had uh, windows in the upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No uh, diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, break of day, the king arose and went into haste, in haste to the den of the lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought, had cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius 
wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be till the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So does Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful to come together again as a people, Lord. And as I read in my introduction, God, we, uh, we live in a time of confusion, Lord, and we want to be a faithful people. We want to know how to thread that knife's edge that you've called us to, to live among the people of the earth and to not assimilate, God. So would you help us in the few minutes that we have here this morning, Lord, to uh, see in your word how you would ought have us live. We thank you, God, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the first point, Daniel is distinguished. So the main question that this series is trying to answer is how do we live faithfully in this generation. And so the main thing that I want to convey to us, and I think this text is trying to convey to us, I'll just tell us right here at the beginning. I think this text is trying to convey to us that we will have the greatest impact on this generation in the seemingly ordinary, mundane things of life. That we will have the greatest impact on this generation in the ordinary and seemingly mundane things of life. That the people in this room, you and me, our daily lives, when lived for Jesus Christ, will have the greatest impact on our society in this generation. Let me expand that a little bit further. I've said a few times that the whole book of Daniel is really just a snapshot of a handful of incidents in his life. This man is living in exile for some 70 years, and like I said, by the time we get to chapter 6, he's likely in his 80s. But I think there may be a temptation to think that life is always marked by these extraordinary events in Daniel's life, but that's just not the case. His life was likely marked by faithfulness, as we see in verse 3, Daniel became distinguished. And as we read in two different spots, it says that he prayed continually as he had always done. There's nothing new to him. But that doesn't happen overnight. This kind of becoming distinguished before the king isn't something that happens overnight. It's something that happens by a long obedience in the same direction. This kind of clout that Daniel garners in his life is because he's lived the day in, day out life as a faithful man. And we really only see a handful of sort of these extraordinary moments in his life. And these extraordinary moments in his life are brought to him because of the years of faithfulness, because of the years of the seemingly simple, ordinary things that men and women do in service to God through Jesus Christ. He prayed. He prayed and and opened his heart before God every day. But we live in a society of now. We live in a society of instant and immediate gratification. The notion of building something or the notion of long obedience in the same direction is largely vanished from at least uh, the voices that we hear and listen to. But we know that most of life and the things that truly matter in life don't actually come immediately. 
The things that truly matter in life and the things that are actually truly beautiful to us aren't things that just happen instantaneously most of the time. The things that are truly beautiful and meaningful to us are things that have been built over years of faithfulness. Things like a happy and healthy marriage. Things like learning to play a beautiful musical instrument. Things like having an enduring, lasting church to be part of. These aren't things that just happen instantly. They're things that happen over a progression of time. They're things that come by simple, seemingly mundane, ordinary things of life. A long obedience in the same direction. And it's only after the fact that we look back on them that we see that they truly are beautiful. We see that they're truly beautiful when we stand at a wedding and we realize that there's people here that have been married for 50 years And we're just mesmerized by what kind of commitment, what kind of faithfulness, what kind of long-suffering and patience and forbearing and forgiveness that must have took to happen. And it's beautiful to us. Now, Daniel's 80 years old. And we may be tempted to think that the greatest tests of faith come to us when we're young teenagers, early 20s, we talk a lot about people losing their faith after high school and losing their faith in college and so on. But Daniel experienced one of the greatest challenges of his entire life when he was in his 80s. For many of us in this room, we know how to endure, endure rather, through our teenage years. For many of us in this room, we know how to endure for what it's like to have a young marriage and young kids, because we've lived it. But we don't know what it is to endure to the end. And we need the generation in front of us. I'm speaking to those of this, this congregation with gray hair right now, or should have gray hair. Dan, you should have gray hair. You're like a, an anomaly of life. <laughs> I have gray hair, Dan. <laughs> We need you to show us what it is to endure to the end. And just as a gentle exhortation to you, to not think that the greatest challenge of faith is behind you, the greatest challenge to endure might still be in front of you. And we need you to show us what it is to trust God through the end. Don't think that the hardest challenge in life won't come in the last part of it. Don't coast to the end. I'm going to give an Eric Little illustration, but it's not the one I always give. <laughs> it's not that I seal his pleasure. Um, in, the, in the Paris Olympics in the 20s, Eric Little uh, normally ran the 100-meter dash, but because the 100-meter dash was on a Sunday, he ran the 400 instead. And uh, when he was interviewed and asked, how do you run so well in the 400 when you, tr- when you train for the 100? And he said, well, it's, it's, it's really simple. This is what I do. For the first 200 meters, I run as hard and as fast as I can. Is it, and then for the second 150 meters, I run harder than that. And he said, and for the last 50 meters, I run harder than I've ever ran in my entire life. And that's how I won the 400 meter. <laughs> it's an encouragement to you to continue... <laughs> You're welcome, Dan. (laughs) Run harder, Dan. (laughs) But I think there's a word for us here in seeing that Daniel is not swayed by this edict from 
Darius, Darius. He's not swayed by it. He's like, enough of this guy. I've been serving God all these years. I've been praying to him every day. No edict is going to sway me and change me. I know that God will deliver. I know he will have his way and his will with me. Daniel is distinguished, which means that he's responsible, the text tells us, for the king's welfare. Uh, Verse 2 says that uh, he was responsible so the king would suffer no loss. He was to make sure that the king wasn't going to get ripped off. So this leads to a promotion in his life in verse 3. And no one's happy about this promotion. You can see as you're just walking through the text in verse 4. And they're, they're likely not happy about this promotion because it likely means their demotion. If Daniel's going to be appointed above these three, uh, these three overseers, the three presidents, the ESV calls it, then that means that other people are likely going to get this demotion. And so they plot against him. But they can't find anything wrong with his work, it says in verse 5. So they have to turn to the law of his God. He was a hard worker, but he was also an effective worker. Because you can be a hard worker and still be ineffective. But he was a hard worker who was effective. It says there was a spirit of excellence in him. He was an effective, hard worker. So how do we apply this to our lives this morning? What do we learn from Daniel? I was reading the Sermon on the Mount this week, and just this image of Daniel being an illustration of what Jesus talks about just popped out to me, of salt and light. Jesus says at the end uh, of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. He says that we're salt and light. That's what Jesus says to us. And what an illustration I think we have here in Daniel as one who is salt and light. I think what also we see in Daniel chapter 6 is he's basically a case study of Jeremiah 29. I've read it many times, so I won't do it again. But as I said a few months ago, Jeremiah tells us, don't separate, move in. Don't separate, move in. Commentators say that some of the exiles were living on the fringes of the city. They had set up encampments on the outside of the city. And so the prophet Jeremiah's exhortation to them is, don't, don't do that. Don't just, don't just separate yourselves from these Babylonians. He says, move in among them. Move in and live among them. He says, but don't assimilate remain distinct from them and seek the good of the city. And I think we see all of that in Daniel here in chapter six. He lives among these people. They know him. They know what he's about. They know enough about him to know that they can entrap him in the law of his God. They see how he lives. He's lived all these years among them. He's got a government job, for goodness sakes. He retains his identity, though. He retains his identity as one who is faithful to Yahweh. He's faithful to his God. He pours out his heart before him three times a day. And three, he works excellently. He serves the king well. He seeks the good and the welfare of Babylon. He does it so well that the king's ready to promote him. So he lives among them, he retains his identity, and he works excellently for the king. He's Jeremiah 29. This is a case study for us. But here's the salt principle I think that's applicable for us today. There's two things I think we think about when we think of salt. One is that salt gets out. It gets out and it touches things. 
It gets out and it touches things. That's sort of the live among them thing. But salt, though, doesn't just get out. Salt has this preserving effect. You know, we salt everything. Well, okay, I salt everything. Okay, you, you might too. But in the ancient world, salt was used to prevent something from going bad. We would salt meat. We would salt meat to keep it from spoiling. You would salt things to preserve them. You would salt things, salt things to keep them. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking also this week about the Tower of Babel. And the main thing at stake here in the Tower of Babel, and I was thinking about it because we're talking about the Babylonian Empire and, and the Persian Empire, which succeeded it. But the Tower of Babel, the primary uh, uh, ethos at the Tower of Babel is let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And I thought of something as I was thinking about that. They never finished. They never finished. The tower is never high enough. When we're making a name for ourselves, when we're making our name for ourselves through money, or making a name for ourselves through power, or we're making a name for ourselves through even how we look and distinguish ourselves among other people, then it seems like we will never be finished with it. It seems like it'll always lead to contention and fighting, and it's actually never complete. Constantly posturing, constantly positioning to make a name for ourselves. Through whatever it is, a name for ourselves to say we are significant, we have meaning, we have value, we are somebody. But in the gospel, in the gospel, we get a name. We get the name as beloved sons and daughters of God. God says, not through your posturing, not through your manipulating, but through the grace that's found in Jesus Christ alone. All that's required of him is that you feel your need for him and come to him as the great physician. And he bestows upon you the name as his son and daughter. So as Christians, we move out into the world already with a name. We move out into the world as a preserving element because we already have a name. But what does that look like, though? The main point of this sermon is to say it's through the seemingly ordinary, mundane things of life that we will have the greatest effect on this generation, on this culture. How do you act at your job, then, tomorrow morning? How do you act at your job when you're wronged by a boss? When you were supposed to be scheduled off for that shift because you had other plans, but the boss scheduled somebody else off instead? Respond graciously, you respond the same way that everyone else does? Or is there something distinct and unique about us? How do you respond when miffed by a coworker? Is there something unique and distinct about us? Because I think this text is telling us is that it's in the seemingly simple things. It's in the seemingly day in, day out, long obedience in the same direction where we will begin to have the greatest influence on this culture around us. Look, most of us, Most of us are not going to go to Ivy League graduate schools, okay? Some of us might. Well, I'm not, but some of you might. Some of you might be able to get into Ivy League graduate schools and be real culture makers, be the kinds of people that are university professors, politicians, policymakers, and so on. But most of us, most of us will live our lives, will have our children, God willing, will raise them in the nurture and mission of the Lord, will work our jobs for 35 years, and will die. We won't be remembered in three generations. I don't know my great-great-grandfather's name. But it will be in the seemingly ordinary things of life that we will have the greatest impact on the world 
around us. Daniel was salt because Daniel was a faithful presence. Let me just say two more things about salt. It's a preserving element. So just say a what and a where. A what and a where. Well, what is it? I just want to say what it can't be. What it can't be is moving into a post-Christian society that salt can't just be vocational ministers. We can't just think that that those that are actually effective in life for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus are those that are pastors, those that are paid missionaries, and so on. It just simply can't work that way. It can't work that way. Salt has to be an organic element to it. It has to go out into everything in society. See, the church's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I can't go to all your workplaces and all your neighborhoods and all your social interactions. You do that. You go out into the world and you have a preserving element to those around you. You love your neighbors as yourself. It goes out. It's a what. It what? It can't be ministers. And it's where? It's where it's among the people. Look, I think this means at least one thing for us. It means that we can't just pick the places to live that aren't falling apart. We can't just pick the places to live that aren't falling apart. If salt is to have a preserving element to it, then it must be in places that are in danger of not being preserved. We can't just live where the best schools and the best neighborhoods are. We have to be willing to move into places that are actually falling apart. Well, let me go on. I I should have not said this was going to be short. (laughs) Let me move on. Point two. The law of his God. Verse 4 says this. It says, Then the presidents and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against him with regard to the kingdom, with regard to the kingdom but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall find... Uh, not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find a connection to the law of his God. So first, I just want to see the cause of this jealous, of this, uh, this consternation. Well, I think the first thing is just this then in verse 4, that then he's about to be promoted. It's simply, uh, it's just simple jealousy. I think we can understand that at least on one level. It's simple, it's just simply workplace jealousy. So they seek to find some dirt on him. Well, as they search for this dirt, there's none to be found. And they say the only way that we're going to entrap him is through the law of his God. And I think there's a point and a principle for us here, that there's something, there's something to the world about Christians that makes us strange. There's something about us that the world just doesn't understand about us. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. There's just something about being a Christian that is rightly strange to the watching world. The world simply can't understand us. Oftentimes, the things that we do, the world will see and think is just arrogant. Here's one of the reasons why I think this is the case. And I think it's a bit of a paradox. Because the way that we are effective in the world is because we have been transformed. 
The way that we're effective in the world is because we have been transformed. And the way that we can be effective in the world is because our citizenship is actually in heaven. Because in the gospel, we received a name. We've received a new identity, as it were. We're a new creation. Our, 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 our dwelling place is now in the city of God. That's what actually makes us effective in the world around us. But the paradox is, is that's also what makes us not totally fit in. It's also what makes us not totally fit in because we're part of another country. It's a paradox. The reason that we are effective is the very reason that we are misunderstood. The reason that we are effective, the reason that Daniel is actually effective is the very reason that he is misunderstood. His true country was elsewhere. He was an exile, a sojourner, a stranger. He prays three times a day, he tells us in verse 9. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you belonged to the world, they would love you. If you belonged to the world, they would love you. But we don't belong to the world, my friends. We belong to God through Jesus Christ, and our true citizenship is in that heavenly kingdom. But isn't that the paradox? The paradox is the very thing that makes us effective is the very thing that keeps us as outsiders, keeps us as being understood, keeps us from actually fitting in in the world around us. Let me just apply it in one way. In one way. It's just the nature of religion and the gospel. See, religion says, the world thinks they understand what we're all about because religion says, uh, obey God and eventually he will bless you. But in the gospel, in the gospel it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all the blessings of heaven are freely bestowed upon you now. They're freely given to you now. And the world never understands the gospel. They can't understand the gospel by the very nature of it. If they did, they would be converted. They can't understand it. The gospel, do you see, sounds so arrogant to some people. To us, it sounds humble that no one is good. No one is good, no, not one. To us, it sounds like utter humility to us, that we're coming to God and say, God, only you alone can save us. But to an outsider, that can sound incredibly arrogant and prideful. Say that no one's good. But my friends, they have to misunderstand us. That's the very nature of it. They have to misunderstand us. The very way that we can be effective, the very reason that we are effective is because we don't fit in. Because our heavenly kingdom, our actual dwelling place, is otherworldly. But that's what makes us light. That's what makes us light. A city set on a hill. Let me close by point three. Daniel's God. The danger in Daniel chapter 6 is it might be one of the most familiar uh, Bible stories that exists. Daniel in the lion's den. And I think countless uh, young boys and girls have been told, uh, if you are as obedient as Daniel is, and um, and you pray as much as Daniel is, and you're as faithful as Daniel is, then God will rescue you too. Is that the point of Daniel chapter 6? And I know that there are several Christians that are weak Christians or maybe not even Christians anymore because that's the way that they've understand not only Daniel chapter 6, but they've almost understand all of Christianity and all of the gospel. 
Because if you perform a certain way, then in the end, God will rescue you from all calamity. And if he didn't, either it's you weren't obedient enough or he's failed you. You didn't live up to your part of the bargain or he didn't live up to his. And that, my friends, is the essence of morality or moralism, rather, and religion. And it is not the story of the Bible. It is not the nature of the gospel. The gospel is not come to me and no more problems will happen in your life. Obey me and you'll be saved from all the calamities in your life too. Jesus said the very opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. He's saying that to his disciples. So what does it tell us then? I think it tells us two things at least, this lion's den scene. First, it tells us about a salvation in the future. A salvation in the future. You ever noticed, C.S. Lewis talks about uh, in his some of his writings on miracles, that miracles often aren't just these random displays of power for no reason. He says, miracles often are serving a purpose. C.S. Lewis says that miracles that we see Jesus performing are setting the natural world to the way that it should have been. They're a glimpse into that new heavens and new earth. It's the healing of lepers. It's the healing of the lame. It's setting the world right to way, the way that it ought to have always been. And we get a glimpse of that here with Daniel. We get a glimpse of it. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf, uh, chapter 11 rather, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. This is a picture into the new heavens and the new earth when God will set the world to its rights. When God sets the world to the way things ought to have always been. When he restores the world to order. And Daniel is giving us a glimpse into God preparing to do that. Because the point of Daniel chapter 6 was to give those people in exile hope. To give them hope that God will restore them from exile. And the practical and 2016 point of Daniel chapter 6 is to tell us as sojourners and exiles in our own exile, in a different kind of exile, yes, but our own exile, that God will deliver us from this exile and he will set the world to its rights. So it's okay to relax. It's okay to be faithful. Don't feel the temptation as it were, to be one of these lawless ones. But the second reason, the second thing I think Daniel chapter 6 is showing us in the lion's dead is that there's this messenger that is sent from God again. Just like in the fiery furnace, they saw a fourth figure, as it, so it is in Daniel chapter 6 that God sends his messenger to be with Daniel. Isn't it striking to you to think about all the ways that God could have rescued Daniel. All the ways that God could have rescued Daniel. He could have just snatched him out of it. He could have, uh, he could have, done, uh, he could have done a, a multitude of things. But what God constantly does is he doesn't save in spite of the trial. God saves through the trial. It's not in spite of, it's through it. 
It's because it. It's the very means whereby God actually saves us and walks with us. So my friends, the trial that you are in right now in your life, it is God's good hand to walk through the trial with you, never leave you or forsake you, walk by your side. And it's through the trial, not in spite of it, that God will deliver you. Look, there's many, many allusions to Daniel and Jesus himself, right? He's in a tomb that's sealed. It's sealed with a signet. Days later, the next morning, they wake up and he's, and he's, and he's, and he's well. He's, he's healed. But you know, though, that because of the cross, that because of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was placed in the lion's dead. In the book, in the Old Testament, the lion's or the roar of the lion is almost always a reference to God's judgment. It's God's judgment. And Jesus Christ himself experienced the full judgment of God in your place and on your behalf so that you can know that the trials of your life is not God abandoning you, it's not God even punishing you. It's God's good, kind care for you and he will never leave you or forsake you and you know that it's true because of the cross. It is not for your judgment, it is for your good. Remain faithful in the midst of this exile for God is working with you and walking with us. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We ask God that you would help us to be a faithful people, that we would walk through this current exile as salt and light, Lord, that we would go out into the world, we'd be a preserving element because we have the gospel deep down in our hearts. You have given us a name that is above uh, the names that we could ever build and make for ourselves. God, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for this good message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.